job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. Today on Notably Disney, it is a pleasure to be bringing on board the composer of the Secrets of the Whales four-part documentary series that debuted on Disney Plus on Earth Day, Raphael Thibault. Raphael is a really cool and innovative composer whose work for Secrets of the Whales blends her passion for classical music and even some synth. It's a really rich soundtrack that you can actually find online. You can purchase and enjoy it outside of the space of the documentary, but I would highly encourage you to check it out on Disney+. Plus. It focuses on many whale species across the world, including humpbacks and belugas and sperm whales and orcas, and you have a much greater appreciation for these monstrous beings that encompass our seas and Raphael's musical touch adds such richness to the magnificence that you see visually. And uh, in this conversation, you'll learn a little bit more about Raphael's background, how she unexpectedly uh, shifted her career to be in the world of composing, what it's like for her as a female composer, as many of us appreciate. Um, sadly, there are not um, many female composers and uh, Raphael's contributions for Secrets of the Wills um, are quite uh, impressive. So you'll learn about uh, some of the touches that she brought to this project through uh, that real rich understanding of classical music and, uh, and all other styles as well. So let's get right into that conversation with composer Raphael Thibault. In National Geographic's Secrets of the Whales, viewers witness the, majest the majestic mammalian families whose sense of commitment and loyalty are really akin to our own as humans. Composing this stunning series is Raphael Thibault, whose investment in her craft comes through really beautifully in complementing the amazing visuals with this ocean song score 
that really only enhances the experience. The score ranges from hard pounding to soothing and everything in between. And along the way, Raphael showcases her facility with a range of tools and instruments to accurately convey the emotion. Raphael, it is a treat to have you on Notably Disney today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. And, and thanks so much for your nice words about my music too. Thank you, I'm really touched. Well, we're gonna really uh, explore a lot of different aspects of the score, but I'd like to begin with uh, you providing a bit of context um, to who you are for listeners who may be unfamiliar with your background. Um, could you talk about how playing piano as a child not only strengthened your craft, but also your hearing too? Yeah, I, I started music very early on. I think I was around four. My parents made me play the piano because I had I had some like hearing issues because I had a lot of um, I had a lot of problems, infections when I was just a baby. And um, they, they had been told back then that piano was a great instrument for people with that kind of problems because it's a very soft instrument and also because you don't have to tune it yourself. Um, so for, for a while in my childhood, my hearing was kind of an, uh, an issue, uh, but, um, only in one year. Um, and then I guess it, it helped, uh, playing few hours every day. Um, you know, um, as, as well as of course, amazing doctors, <laughs> uh, that took care of me, but, um, I was, I was, I, I spent a long time, a long years, 15, I think, in a conservatory in France, um, learning everything about reading and performing music, but I was very obsessed with movies and film already as a kid, um, and it really wasn't a thing at home, so I'm not sure where it came from, so um, my background is very classical, but I was into film score very, very early on, too, and then um, I dropped out of music school when I was 18 um, because I think nobody really told me that I could do something like being a film composer. Um, and so I, I, I was really not interested in the performing as, you know, aspect of, the, of, of music. I, I just wanted to do something else. I just didn't know what it was. Um, and I took a completely different path for 13 years. I ended up in the tech industry. I worked at Google. Um, where I realized that had, I had felt out of place the whole time and that I belonged in it somewhere else. And I quit my job after a life-changing event um, at, at Google at Abbey Road Studios in London, where um, some engineers, you know, took me through Stephen Price's scores for Gravity and Fury. And I remember, I remember feeling completely dazed and set at the same time. I, I had no idea how was these cables will, you know, all fit together. I just didn't know that that's where I belong. So that's when I switched back and I, I switched back to music and that was five years ago. Um, so I, I, I left my job and became a full-time music composer. And then a couple of years after I got in touch with the team for Secrets of the Whales. <laughs> It's, it's an amazing journey, um, and I'd love to ask you a few follow-up questions based on um, some things you mentioned. Uh, shifting back to um, your classical background, what, what about the piano for you resonated as, as a, your instrument of choice? Oh, I, I don't, I, I didn't really feel like I chose, I mean, chose it because I feel like it was kind of imposed to me, but uh, to be honest, 
Okay, that's sure. a great thing. Uh, I have two sisters and my older sister was a violinist and still is. And uh, my younger sister played the cello and I ended up being the pianist in the family. But that was, yeah, a lot was due to my hearing. But I think also it was just the perfect instrument for me because um, I just love the fact that, you know, you can have like, you can play so many, so many different things. And I also was so into the piano repertoire, you know, from the late um, post-romantic era. So I would listen to piano concertos for hours when I was just a kid. And I was always, always attracted by this instrument. And I don't think it has to do with the fact that I've been, you know, that have that had that that was my instrument I I just I just love it so much and it's actually great that you know it it happened this way because now as I mean I mean as you know like a lot of if not most of composers for films now are composing on a piano you know so I'm glad that that was my instrument and that still is (laughs) absolutely and and you shared about your passion for film music were there any scores growing up that really connected with you? Oh, uh, I mean, I think I was I was I was very very into the French Italian cinema, you know, of the 60s 70s. So, and I I don't you know I was really young, so I don't think it was really connected to the movies themselves. It was just that I was for some reason obsessed with the cinematic aspect of music. It was to me the perfect compromise between the classical background that I was in and modernity of music, you know, and new aspects of, of, of contemporary music. And I think my, the, 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 maybe it was because I'm, I, I'm French, but I was very influenced by the composers like Ennio Morricone, Nino Rota, uh, Giorgio Moroder, François de Roubaix, Giorgio all those composers who were very important in the 60s, 70s, even 80s. And um, I think also because my dad was listening to some of them, I was very influenced by those uh, persons in particular, yeah. Yeah, those, it sounds like those, um, that familiarity early on really guided you in terms of uh, many of your interests. And sure. what, what, what I found fascinating about your story is that um, you have such a rich musical background and certainly your career shifted. But then, as you mentioned, going to Abbey Price or Abbey Road Studios and, and hearing the score for Gravity and Fury, that that really was a, a defining moment for you, a, a shift. Yeah, that was that was such a that that was really that was actually very sudden. I, I always knew, I think some part of me always knew that I was not going down the right path I, I I knew that it was not for me but it was just easier I guess um, um you know it was just more it just felt more normal I guess and which is weird because my older sister is um a violinist in the in in the Paris orchestra so it's it's in the it runs in a family like you know music is not like this thing that has been pointed out like not normal not stable enough like uh, to a certain point, but I I think it's just because I, I I was not ready to project myself as a music like film composer. I don't know if part of it is due to the fact that I didn't really have any female role models in the composing world for films. 
uh, especially back then. Um, and I don't know if it's because I couldn't see any of those composers be happening to be women. So maybe maybe that also played a role. Um, but yeah, I think I just needed this time to realize that this was my entire world. And, you know, like this first love that you have to be away from to, you know, go back to it after a while and just realizing that's what you actually want to do and where you want to be. Um, but this event at Abbey Road Studio was uh, very, very unexpected. And I spent two hours in, in the mixing room, like Studio Two, and with this engineer who was basically dem demoing for everyone, you know, all the guests who were politicians and who were policymakers, and they didn't really know anything about music. And I don't even think they were really, you know, fascinated by what he was saying or doing. And I was completely, uh, completely absorbed fascinated by what I was saying and two weeks after I was I was I was out <laughs> well and I and I'd love to to explore the role of gender in the the world of film composing a, a little bit later I actually had some questions uh, for you about that I am curious though once you made that decision to to enter the composing industry what were what were your initial steps or measures that you took to uh, immerse yourself so that was that was quite hard because I didn't know anyone in the industry. I uh, was I was I was I, I had moved to London for work a, a little while before, so I was kind of away from home too. So that was very, a very lonely, um, uh, a very lonely journey at the beginning because I really it really felt like I was starting from nothing. I had no. I had no, you know, I hadn't graduated in those big music school. Um, I had spent 13 years in advertising in, in tech. I mean, it, it was hard for me not to be, you know, affected by the imposter syndrome of not knowing what I was really doing. I knew a lot about music, of course, and I was still, I was composing. I've always been kind of composing in my bedroom with, you know, the, 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 the gig that, the gear that I had back then, but um really reach out to people in the industry was something that was completely new to me. So I basically just practiced for months and months uh, in, in my bedroom with the, you know, the little pieces of gear that I had back then. And, and I just composed, composed rest, you know, um, uh, restlessly and until people, you know, were happy with, to hear what I was doing and 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 gave me a chance. That's how it started. So for, like for, I think for a lot of composers who start from scratch, I would say that you obviously do a lot of commercials, short films, um, and that's how it that's that's how it started for me. It it sounds like you were very uh, tenacious in, in in making this work. And what yeah. I and what one thing that was really curious was I didn't realize, but I had actually heard some of your music a few years ago um, as it was featured in the Incredibles 2 trailer. Yeah. Can you talk about how that came to fruition? Sure. Yeah, that's actually, I ended up quite a little bit by accident um, in the trailer world. Um, it's a very, very unique world, um, very demanding, very, very hard. And 
Uh, I, I think I can, I can easily say that this was my school. I learned to work fast, to work under a lot of pressure. Sometimes I have to write three minutes of heavy epic pieces with a 40 minutes deadline. I learned how to manage expectations, dealing with the frustration of losing, because this is basically a lottery. You, you do a lot of pitching and you get very little back. So um, that was, I think that's basically where I learned most of what I can technically do today. Um, and also I, I just, it really taught me how to work under pressure and, um, and how to, yeah, how to deal with frustration. And, and that was, that, that it's a fascinating world. I really love trailers. Uh, I've been attracted by, you know, trailers since I was a kid. Like my, if I would even miss one minute of, you know, the trailers before a movie in theaters, I would freak out. I, I really, I was always fascinated by them. So it was amazing for me to be able to get some custom and placements in some of like the biggest blockbusters of like, you know, the previous years. Uh, I don't do it anymore. I think it, it's, um, it's again, very demanding. Um, and I tend to focus on TV and, and films now, but that was really the best school to me. Well, and what, what I appreciated about that particular um, piece of work is it really captured the dynamic 60s feeling of the Pixar film, mm -hmm. which obviously is a beautiful and dynamic score by uh, Michael Giacchino. And, yeah. it, and it felt seamless. Like if you if you asked me, I would have thought, oh, it was something that Giacchino did, but you, you were able to, it, it captures that same sentiment. Thank you. Yeah, we were actually asked to, uh, at the pitch stage, we were asked to really try to be very close to Michael's score um and and but not but not like you know um mimic like it it, it was not it, it could not be the same but it had to be very close to it so that was that was a big challenge and also you know there was no live instrument involved so when it comes to such a uh you know epic big orchestral piece there's a lot of challenge there too. And I was back then working on some limited, you know, gear. I didn't have the, the, you know, the computing systems that I have now, they were not as powerful. I was just starting. And I remember cutting the, the queue, you know, in like splitting it into five different sections because just my computer was not powerful enough. And it was so, it was, it, it was a lot of stress and, and, I'm so glad that I ended up getting it because that was a lot of work and I was very proud. That was my really first big placement. You probably couldn't do much better than that. So that I'm glad it worked out really well. I'll say that my, uh, you know, uh, I mean, I'm much better equipped now. So it kind of makes it easier. <laughs> well, let's shift a bit over to Secrets of the Whales. Um, I had read a piece by Brian Armstrong, who's the series executive producer, that you were the only composer who, quote, seemed to be offering the heart and soul you were looking for, end quote. That's a stunning testament to the really emotional qualities that are associated with your music. Can you talk about how you became involved in this project? Sure. I was actually approached by two agents who uh, work in the UK. Um, in, it was a while ago, it was, I think, maybe a couple of years after I started as a composer, and they believed in me from the very beginning, uh, had nothing. 
Um, and they're still, by the way, my agents in the UK today. And he had met, I mean, they had met the team at Red Rock Productions a few years back and a couple of years back, I think. And they apparently remembered my work a year after that. And uh, Brian came back to Sophie and Steve and um, he told them that he remembered my, my work and that he would like me to pitch for this series he was working on, Secrets of the Whales. Um, and then I know that they kind of, they, they kind of intended to have multiple composers for the show. So maybe I would write the first episode or, or maybe a couple of episodes. But after I wrote the first, for the first episode, they were really happy and they apparently decided that I would uh, score the entire show. So I was very thrilled about that. And, um, and to be honest, work with Brian um, was one of the best experiences I ever had as a composer. It was, it, it was amazing. What about that was so amazing for you? Can you tell me more? I was, I mean, I was, I, w- I really mainly worked with the team at Red Rock, so especially Brian, and it was just an incredible experience because from a creative perspective, because I had so much freedom. Um, I could ca- I could come up with the creative angles. In most cases, it worked out swimmingly. Mm. Um, it was it was just a very empowering experience as a young composer. It sounds like it. And I'm wondering within the context of a documentary, viewers are really reliant on the narration, the imagery, and the music in tandem to tell a narrative. And I'm wondering how you approach weaving in your music in a manner that doesn't come across as either too understated nor too overcoming. Hmm. Uh, Well, that was, I mean, the, the first thing I thought of when I, I was on board for that project, that it, it was hard as a composer and French and French person not to be, you know, not to think of the score for The Big Blue by Eric Serra. I don't know if you know that movie in the 80s and the way he majestically recreated the haunting sounds of whales. By the way, he did it with synthesizers only and you could you could like if you listen to the score you 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 really it's hard to believe that it's not actual animal sounds um and those synthesizers would pair perfectly with the music and well in the brief the brief was clear uh, from the beginning they didn't want to have obvious whale sounds it was not an option because of the risk to overlap you know with actual sounds from the show um but i I still kind of want to try something around that. And that's why I created those synthetic whale sounds in tune within the music and, uh, you know, incorporated into the cues. Um, and I think they really liked it. And they, they sound more like signature sounds, like an additional instrument, you know, more than like an animal or another character in the, in the film. Right. Well, and there, you're, there's such a variety of instrumentation in this, and, and certainly uh, your command of the piano and composing for it, um, it's really evident in the, in the score. Um, one of the tracks that I quite enjoyed was the Majestic Dances, which, if I remember right, was in the Humpback Whale episode. Um, yeah, I think so. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> they, they all blend together, even though obviously these whale species are so different. I, I'm wondering in what ways did you want the piano to be threaded across the score? Because it, it's such a, 
it, it can be both such a gentle instrument, but also on the flip side, extremely strong and, yeah. and robust. So in what ways do you find the piano to be useful? I usually very, um, it's very instinctive, but I usually, <clears throat> sorry, use the piano, a very soft piano. You know, it has to be a felt piano, something that's really, really soft. Um, you know, as you know, as a position to like a pop piano, pop sounding piano that's going to be very um, much more bright and 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 present. And I, it's always for me, piano is always the best option when it comes to intimacy. And although this show is all about majestic images of huge animals that are so incredibly grand, beautiful, majestic. There's a lot of intimacy in this show. It's all about family, you know, the family ties and relationship between a mother and 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 her her baby and her kids or a grandmother and her grandkid grandchildren. And to me, it felt it felt oh you know it felt um, good to use the piano, this very soft piano in those moments where we go from majestic, you know images where they jump out of the water and then we go and see and and we see those incredibly uh intimate moments family moments that brian um that brian scary managed to capture so perfectly well yes and the, and the imagery is astounding deep the 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 types of um encounters that were visualized just took my breath away particularly that scene with the orca offering um, Brian a piece of the stingray scraps. That's um, amazing. I think he's still he's still he's still thinking about it all the time because that was that was that was an incredible moment. And yeah, that 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 moment was a little challenging for me because I I it had to be you know it had to be very intimate but at the same time it was supposed to be to me it, it was it was so emotional to see this because I can only imagine how Brian felt when this happened and I've I tried to illustrate with the music how I would feel if I was in his shoes you know and that would happen to me and yeah so that's why we have this like ethereal you know but still highly classical slash hybrid music at this very moment. Yeah, the, the blend of, of genres is um, really just well done. And, you know, a fascinating piece of information that I gleaned when I was watching the series was how the distinct families of sperm whales all have their own unique languages of mm -hmm. clicking sounds to communicate. And I'm wondering, um, in approaching this project and, and learning more about the whales, in what ways did the natural sounds that they produce impact, if at all, your use of instrumentation? Oh, it hugely impacted it. You know, it, it actually, beyond writing the music, it, it made me think about, you know, how we perceive music more generally so much. Like, for example, you know, we always think that music is man-made, um, but I think this show also teaching us that music is is really all around, especially when you look at the sound of nature. There's so many, you know, so many hidden melodies, like those those whales who, who you know, sing and who can be heard like miles, miles, miles away. So that was that was really for me 
just a realization that music is everywhere and it's it was not invented by us and i mean not only us at least and that um it it's it almost felt sometimes that i was writing music out of you know the ultimate original music for sure and i understand that you were also very intentional in not having the score fit within particular scenes so as not to distract or overpower the whale's sounds is that right so absolutely yeah it was it was very it, like some 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 moments for example i had to avoid using high pitched instruments like high pitched piano or percussions because i didn't want to i didn't want to overlap with you know the sound of the clicking sound of them um you know um uh, talking to each other so that was that was that was one of the biggest challenges yeah from a creative standpoint interesting and you know when watching secrets of the whales uh, we as viewers glimpse into the powerful bonds among members of these pods, um, particularly among mothers and their children and grandmothers and grandchildren. And, you know, they, they, the whales themselves, they illustrate a lot of commitment and em empathy toward ensuring that their calves become independent and finding food that they're taken care of when threats are lurking. And, and I understand that you are a new mom yourself. And I'm wondering uh, what musical influences perhaps came into play in trying to relay this special bond between a mother and child. Yeah, that was that was also something that was to me um, very, very significant. I I actually I actually had a baby a few months before I started uh, composing for the show. And um, it, it, it really, I could relate so much more than I thought I could ever relate to an animal. Um, writing for the, the, the show, especially, you know, this mother whale who carries her dead calf for days before finally letting go. Um, I had no idea that this is what apparently whales do. So it, it, it there are so many, you know, prime examples of how complex em, uh, their emotional lives are. And um, it was, it was, it was really, really, it was really special to me. I'm wondering, Raphael, in terms of trying to relay the, the tone and the gravity of a, a scene like that with the, the mother carrying her dead calf, what, um, what, what comes to mind in terms of your, your use of instrumentation and, and melody, perhaps? I guess, I guess it was, I mean, for, for all the moments that are a little sad in, in the show, I, I tend to use uh, solo instruments like, you know, the string instruments, um, like cellos or, or violins, because I really felt that they were the most appropriate. Um, and, you know, again, I, I don't, you know, I, I never really, I never really thought this through. I, I feel like a lot of what I did for this show was very, um, um, you know, through, based on my instinct. And it, it was it was really not like, um, I didn't really think it through. It, it was, it was so, so it's hard for me to answer that actually, because I don't really know why I, I guess, I guess I wanted to, again, something really intimate, but even, even more par powerful and emotional than the piano. So that's why I would use those instruments in particular. I hope I hope I answer your question. <laughs> yes, yes, very much so. Um, and, and I'd like to return back as we begin to wrap up. Um, you mentioned at the onset of our conversation just um, not seeing many female composers in in the industry, and and that's very very apparent. And and I guess I'm wondering, 
how you see yourself as perhaps a, a role model or, or inspiration for young women who want to enter this space um, but sim and simply just do not have many people to look up to because they are not necessarily always um, uh, getting work for, for major projects, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, the, the number, you know, of women actually scoring, you know, uh, projects every year is, is shocking and it makes me sad every time it's out, you know, every year. But um, to me, it's also a driving force. I would not, you know, I would not presume to try and explain why the numbers are so bad. Uh, I do believe that there are tons of talented female composers out there, and I believe in role models and education. And I would, I would really want and love to be this role model for the younger versions of myself who mostly had men to look up to. Like as I said before, I, I don't remember listening. You know, none of, none of the composers that I was listening when I was a kid or a teenager happened to be women. Um, so and I think there is a genuine true awareness in the industry, though, and that a lot of people are willing to change that number. Um, um, and yeah, I, th I think role models are, are paramount. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you have any ideas behind how the industry can change to to more explicitly invite the talents that female composers can bring to these types of media? I think actually, I think that's what uh, is going on right now at, and I witnessed it at many levels, you know, just some people want to actually work specifically with women and female composers. Um, and I think this is how, you know, just breaking the ceiling. I think, I think, I think, I think people need to be aware of the situation and be wanting to to see more female composers around uh, and want to work with them. So I think it's um, and it's also, I guess, you know, between us, like between women, just being willing to work with, you know, with women, you know, with uh, female filmmakers. Um, yeah, I think it's 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 hard because it has to come it's such a complex issue and it has to come from so many different perspectives for sure no i think you you covered the the complexity of that really well i did want to just say that it is such a pleasure that your your the soundtrack for secrets of the whales is available for folks to listen to outside of the documentary context what's like what's that like for you for your music to be heard in a um in another a mechanism outside of the actual feature oh that's i was so i was so glad when they when they uh when they said that they wanted to release a soundtrack it's always you know it's always um, a blessing for a composer when it happens and i'm so glad it was out especially because i i was asked to you know highlight the the track that i would prefer you know for the soundtrack and so kind of make the selection myself because there was obviously much more, many, many more cues than the ones that we can find in the soundtrack. Um, it's it's always a it's always a blessing, and I'm always like, of of course, it's like another dimension. It just takes you to another level. And you know, there's also this um, tour that's going to happen next year. So we worked on a 90 minutes version of the show um that's going to be um you know with an orchestra and it's going to touring it's going to be touring and it it's it's so exciting as a composer 
because you know see it, it's it's one thing to you know hear and and see your, your music if might say on a show but then you know as a soundtrack that's released and then you know as a live event so this is going to be another another dimension given to the soundtrack and I cannot wait for us to be able to you know be gathered again in a big holes so we can see this live oh I'm so excited for you that congratulations that's that's so wonderful as we wrap up um, I know that this has been a, a very active period for you in terms of composing. Um, you have other projects that have debuted or are debuting this year, um, including the introducing the Selma Blair documentary and yes. Tomb Hunters on Smithsonian Channel. What a variety of topics, Raphael. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, um, yeah, that's, Selma Blair uh, documentary was, was very, very different from, you know, from what I did for Secret of the Whales, and that was another incredible experience um and it was it was another project that i had to to that i had they had the chance to work on during covid and during the lockdown so these projects are always going to be a little unique you know also because of that um and i'm also i'm going to start work working on another documentary um it's, it's called mama's boy um in the fall and it's um it's based on a 2019 memoir by um uh, dustin lens black who you know he's a oscar winning scripts for milk the movie um and it's um this is also going to be another beautiful beautiful project and i can't wait to yeah i can't wait to start a lot going on that's that's wonderful well yeah. As we wrap up, I'm, I'm going to ask you um, some common questions that I ask of my guests that are music related, um, and in particular Disney music. Um, first one for you is, what Disney soundtrack did you listen to most while growing up? Oh, wow, that's a good question. Um, hmm, I think... I think that obviously it's, that's not going to be very original, but The Lion King definitely, definitely was one of them. And uh, Tarzan as well. Like, I don't know why. Uh, I was so obsessed that when I went to see this movie, eh, I remember taking my old recorder with me, recording the movie, actually, the, the music bites, so I can go home and listen to the music on my recorder. I know I didn't know back then that it was so not legal to do that, by the way. <laughs> so I know. But I was just a kid and I had no idea that soundtracks were actually a thing, you know, uh, until I actually bought my first CD. So so I just wanted to capture the audio and of the movie and listen it and listen to it. I remember in my bed for hours. I don't know That's why this one, but <laughs> That's fascinating. Was it both Phil Collins songs or and or also Mark Mancina's score? It was both, really. It was both. Um, although although the score um, really, I mean, to me, was one of the most incredible um, in that regard. Uh, but Phil Collins songs, oh, my God, they're incredible in the soundtrack. Yeah, it's it's one that never gets old for me. I could listen to those songs on repeat. Yeah. Very good taste. Uh, your second Disney music question for you is, 
what Disney song most recently became stuck in your head? Disney song. Oh, incredible question. I think, well, if it really has to be recent, I guess that Mulan comes to my mind. And I know it's not new because it was already the song, you know, melody that was in the first, you know, um, in the animated movie a while ago. But I just love this melody. I just love the theme. I think it's, it works so great. It's so catchy. Um, so yeah, I'll sing Milan. Huh. Yeah, the reflection song is beautiful. And um, actually, um, earlier in the summer on the podcast, we had on Harry Gregson Williams, who did the score for the, the 2020 film. And it was interesting to hear about his process of translating those themes into the new version. Yeah, I, I, I was, I listened to it singing of that. That's interesting. I'll, I'll definitely listen to that episode. <laughs> Yeah, no, great conversation. Um, well, here's a tough question for you. What Disney film do you feel has the most underrated music? So maybe people don't talk about as much, but you feel is is very over, over um, overlooked oh, in terms of the music. Oh, oh, that's a tough one. Well, you know what, Tarzan is actually a good example. Um, uh, maybe, let me see, uh, probably, I don't know, is, is Tron, you know, underrated because oh, yeah. one that was, I was so obsessed with this, this score by, uh, Daft Punk, mm. uh, I was completely obsessed with it. And, um, I don't know, maybe another one, maybe, maybe, Pocahontas as well. <laughs> I just love the song in that movie, but I don't know. I don't think it was under, I think a lot of people really, really love this one. So uh, it's a hard question, um, but yeah, no, I think I think Tarzan is gonna be my answer. I, th I think so too. And, and Mark Mancina's score doesn't get enough attention. So I, I'm glad that you, you brought that up earlier as well. So Raphael, so I have a random question for you. So this is one that, is unique for every guest. I ask them something related to, to music or, or Disney. And I'm wondering if you could compose the score for another National Geographic documentary about any animal, what creature would it be about and what musical influences would perhaps inspire you? Oh, oh, that's such an interesting question. Um, uh, another animal. Let me think for a minute. Um, I guess, I guess, I don't know. I would have to, it would have, to, it, 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 it must have to do with the sky now because I've been underwater with Secrets of the Whales and I would have to go in the sky now. So I don't know anything about like flying animals, birds or... And I, I, I guess that I would use more airy, you know, you know, instruments because I didn't use a lot of woodwinds, for example. Yeah. Of the whales. So that would be something that would be different. It doesn't really sound very original, but I, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. Mm. So could it be like secrets of the eagles or something? Something <laughs> like that. I'm sure there's a lot to say about yes, that. Yes, Absolutely. Well, finally, how can listeners follow your work uh, and or follow you on social media? Uh, so mostly on, probably mostly on Instagram and Twitter. Yeah, um, I think. 
I don't know if you need the the name of the yeah, that would be great. Otherwise, uh, yeah. And I will provide that in the show notes as well. Okay, great. Uh, I think my Instagram um, account is uh, just Raphael Thibault, my name, first name, last name all attached. Um, and on Twitter, it's Raphae, so R-A-P-H-A-E. That's my Twitter name. Fantastic. Well, um, congratulations again on Secrets of the Whales. It's um, a beautiful documentary and certainly with your score only elevates the, the significance and the majesty. So um, appreciate your time today and um, much future success to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you again to Raphael Thibault for joining me on Notably Disney. As mentioned earlier, you have to listen to this most stirring soundtrack either within the documentary contact context or on your own. And as referenced, Secrets of the Whales will be presented as a concert experience that will be touring uh, starting in 2022. You can actually uh, find some initial press releases that debuted about this online. So that, uh, maybe it's, it was not exclusive news um, per se, um, but certainly there hasn't been a lot of um, major discussion about it thus far. So hopefully dates and details will be posted soon, um, so certainly when it's uh, safer for folks to, to gather in mass for a uh, symphonic experience akin to that, but I imagine that will be quite a treat and boy, what a rewarding thing for a composer to see their work being played in a, a musical venue uh, for hundreds or even thousands of people by, uh, by symphony. That's just really very cool. So many congratulations to Raphael. So thank you again to her for joining me and for all of you for listening. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports. And be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.